Greetings. Hello everyone. Namaste. I hope everyone is doing well. And first of all, before I begin my uh, second episode of the Vajra Wisdom Podcast, I would like to thank all of you who took the time out to listen to the first episode and uh, especially to those who reached out to me in um, uh, messages via social media and uh, I really enjoyed having a conversation with quite a few of you and um, especially those who came up with their ideas and suggestions and questions and um, that's exactly why I took uh, some time to prepare my next episode because I got a lot of food for thought in this last two weeks or so and um, I was thinking, I was really contemplating on um, what else I can proceed about especially because I want to still continue the topics I touched in the very first episode and um, in the very first episode I of course touched upon points which were basic, introductory so to speak, but still extremely important because while I want to proceed with this podcast um, in the future, I would like to also clear a few things. So firstly, the name of Ajravista. In the first episode, I had mentioned about my own journey on this path and my main focus of my studies. So basically, um, I am more invested in the study of Vajrayana Tantric Buddhism and especially the form of Tantric Buddhism which is active in uh, Tibetan and Pan-Himalayan cultures, Tibetan, uh, Bhutanese, Nepali, etc. However, um, during the course of my study all of these years, I've also encountered uh, teachers, practitioners, scholars from both Hindu and Buddhist Tantra, which have of course informed my opinion because I closely... uh, Follow Specifically, if I'm talking about uh, Hindu Tantra, as I was mentioning in the first episode, that um, this term is very, uh, the term Hinduism itself is is a colonial invention. So I would prefer to use terms like Shakta, Shaiva, Vaishnava, etc. So my interests um, lie in the study of Shakta, Shaiva, Tantra and Buddhist Tantra or Bauda Tantra. And in the very first episode, I touched upon some key misunderstandings and why I even started with the topic of deities like Kali and Shiva was because these are some of the most commonly known and commonly misunderstood uh, deities. And in the course of the future episodes, I will shed more light about my research into Vajrayana Buddhism, which is still my main uh, focus of research. But before venturing on to this path, I felt like clearing the air about the general misconceptions and the negative stereotypes about the term and the tradition Tantra as a whole, because I feel that since uh, many of my listeners are coming from um, heavy metal circles and other um, circles, especially maybe even Western magic, um, a lot of these terms and Indian and uh, the pan-Indo-Himalayan traditions and religions are in general quite misunderstood. So I really felt that before I were to venture onto a more deeper scholastic uh, explanation of this system, this path, especially Vajrayana Buddhism, I wanted to first focus on the key points which um, really need to be addressed 
And unfortunately, very few people speak about that. So in the previous episode, I touched upon the misunderstandings of Tantra and deities like Kali and Shiva who are misinterpreted or why this misinterpretation happened and um, the Orientalist thought, the colonial thought I also touched upon, um, left-hand path, uh, the term that was, uh, you know, seemingly misunderstood by Blavatsky, who took it from uh, the tantric Vamachara and Vamamarga, and she misinterpreted that term, which became a commonly used term in the Western magic circles uh, since then. So now in this current chapter, I would proceed further into addressing more further negative stereotypes about Tantra. But before I do so, I would also like to highlight, as I was saying in the first episode, the whole term Tantra itself can be quite confusing because the term has a very wide-ranging meaning. Because if you look at the Sanskrit meaning of the word uh, Tantra, a Tantra is basically a system. It, it's... Uh, Etymologically, it can mean different things. There's many interpretations. And uh, basically, even in the, in the Vedic text, the word Tantra occurs. But the meaning of the word Tantra would be completely different. And uh, then in other uh, systems, the word Tantra can signify just a branch of knowledge, a specific science, something... Uh, that deals with the canon, with the principle, with an exposition. And even like um, scientific treatises, which were composed in India, were also known as uh, tantras. And these tantras, these meanings would not be the same as the body of ritual, uh, meditative, deity, practice-oriented uh, tenet that we are discussing in this particular chapter. So basically, we need to first address this point that the term Tantra itself, which is uh, used by Western scholars or in general, not even Tantra, but Tantrism. Tantrism was a term that was coined by Orientalist uh, scholars. And there are many issues with this, because just with the usage of the word Hinduism or Buddhism, all of these isms in the context of um, Indic religions, they tend to be quite problematic, because it seems to signify a monolithic tradition, a monolithic cult, which is not correct. Because if I'm talking about Tantrism in the form of the ritual meditative uh, tradition, it's not a monolithic tradition at all. Because Tantras uh, are both Shakta Shaiva, they're also Bauda, also Jaina, Vaishnava, and different systems. So we cannot say that the term Tantra signifies one particular school of thought because many of these traditions like the soteriological goals, the philosophical tenets of say Shaiva Shakta Tantra would be completely different from Bauda Tantra. The end goal would be different, but they are still Tantra. So in this case, if a person says the term Tantrism or Tantra, it becomes very confusing because there is no common general definition to it. So when we are talking about the term Tantra, we have to be specific about what we are talking about. Nevertheless, the term itself still needs to be discussed because in general, when a person hears the term Tantra or Tantrism, uh, the mind is attuned to a specific way of religious practice or esoteric practice 
And this is why we cannot also completely ignore the term Tantra or Tantrism or say that we must create a new terminology for that. We must understand the distinctions between different Tantric systems. But in general, when we are talking about the term Tantra, specifically in the context of a more religious, esoteric, mystical praxis, then unfortunately at the moment we don't have any other term. So when I'm speaking about the term Tantra, it evokes different feelings, different thoughts, whole variety of emotions among different types of people. And in the previous episode, I was dealing with how um, Western misinterpretations stemming from pop culture and films like Indiana Jones or Orientalist uh, depictions of deities like Kali have created a very strange outlook of Tantra. And not to forget uh, the Neo-Tantra, which just talks about sexuality and achieving orgasm. And many people equate the act of Kama Sutra or um, any kind of sexual praxis, ordinary sexual praxis, not eroto-mysticism as Tantra. So there are many problematic uh, definitions which have been attributed to this term. But even in India, the country of the origin of Tantra, uh, there have been a lot of other problems too. So basically in India, as I was touching upon in the previous episode, that due to colonial rule and before that uh, we were ruled by the Mughals and other Islamic invaders who basically were ruling India for centuries. I mean, let's say that India was under foreign domination and specifically um, Islamic and then Christian domination for several centuries. I mean, the British alone were ruling in India for 200 years. So a lot of that obviously had a huge impact on the way religious affairs in India were. Because India was always a very fertile ground for religious and spiritual contemplation. In fact, uh, when Westerners talk about rationalism or skepticism or atheism, in fact, in Indian traditions, in ancient Indian traditions, many schools had already developed non-theism, even atheism. There have been even materialistic and hedonistic schools of thought. And I'm talking about over 1,000 years ago, even let's say 2,000 years ago. So in India, the metaphysical and spiritual search has always been dominant throughout our history. I mean, even the term India has been given by the British. But if I'm still talking about the entire subcontinent, which comprises the different regions where different uh, philosophical tenets uh, specifically the tenets which have been combined altogether as Hinduism, uh, then we can still use this term or people like to use the term Bharata, Bharatvarsha. So again, there is a lot of uh, problems with this etymological terminologies, right? And also I would like to address this, that um, there were different um, regions that comprise this huge landmass that people now know as India and even more because even... Uh, modern-day Pakistan and Afghanistan, they were also under control of kings who you could now, politically speaking or geographically speaking, people could say they were under Indian rule. So this is another issue, but that's not the topic of discussion at the moment. So what I'm trying to say here is that basically in India, from, the, from ancient times, um, great thinkers, great philosophers, great meditators emerged 
all of whom were trying to interpret reality, interpret the nature of existence, interpret the role of man in this huge cosmos from our very ancient times, whether it's the Vedic traditions, the Puranic thought, the Upanishads, the Sankhya philosophies, the Jainas, the Baudhas, you name it. There have been n number of darshanas or philosophical thoughts in India, which is the beauty of this ancient country. And that many of these philosophical tenets might be completely opposed to each other, but yet they all emerged from the same landmass, which talks about the beauty of uh, the thought process of the people who created these systems or who inherited this uh, information. And Tantra is no stranger to that, because Tantra also, if I'm talking about Tantric uh, tradition in the sense of the esoteric mystical tradition, it also aimed specifically to understand man's nature in this vast cosmos and also aim to understand the interpersonal relations between the microcosm and the macrocosm and this is a very important thing to think about this cannot be ignored however due to the changing religious socio-religious and socio-political paradigm of india under centuries of islamic rule and then further two centuries and more of colonial British rule, Tantra kind of took a backseat. In fact, Tantra even became a maligned uh, subject, so much so that it became relegated to a class of low black magic, which is only practiced by the lower castes who are engaged in different sort of witchcraft. And unfortunately, this idea, this unfortunate misinterpretation of Tantra exists in the country of its origin, India, even till now. If I'm talking about the mainstream orthodox dominant religions of India, the more orthodox form of Brahmanism or Hinduism, then Tantra is definitely not something that is spoken of in good terms among the society. Of course, in India, there are specific regions which luckily still preserve the Tantric ethos, but you would still see that the orthodox ideas have crept in to the idea of tantric worship and I have experienced this personally when I was traveling in Bengal and different places which have been hubs of tantric practice but um, upon discussing with certain uh, tantric priests in Bengal during my recent travels I also came to understand that the religious background even in these regions where tantra historically was extremely strong and heterodox religious ideas were stronger even there the orthodox ideas of religion are unfortunately creeping in and they seem to dominate the heterodox more free idea of tantra and in general too in india unfortunately a lot of charlatans who are posing themselves as tantrics they have reduced Tantra to a class of black magic in which they claim to help people by doing some kind of spells. And there are so many of such people proliferating. I mean, even if you just do a quick Google search and write Tantra India, you would see n number of websites of charlatans promoting themselves as healers or as black magic experts who can solve any issue in your life 
for a specific amount of fee and our newspapers our daily media is filled with such reports and i was searching upon this topic even in my last lesson so it is very unfortunate but this also happened due to this dominance of islamic christian thoughts and also the uh, upper hand of the orthodoxy the orthodoxy indian religion itself brahmanism or the vedic school of thought which prefers more ritual purity rather than focusing on tantric deities many of whom could even subject on more taboo ideas or many of the deities even whose iconography itself is quite antinomian in nature and then on the other hand the emergence of the bhakti movement too in the medieval era especially in the time when um the moguls were ruling india that time the bhakti movement became very strong and basically the bhakti movement was criticizing the esoteric ideas that tantras and even the hatha yogas of the nath yogas uh, nath yogis were propagating and in fact there had been criticism from uh, specific sikh saints to who have criticized the esoteric practice of channels of chakras or basically contemplating the body itself as a deity which is the idea of tantra that uh, the body itself is divine and the bhakti movement basically was pretty much inspired i would say by the emerging uh islamic school of thought which was also looking into the god the creator as existing as outside uh an individual and they thought that this is the only way of emancipation by praying one pointedly single pointedly devoting oneself to their own specific idea of a god then only a person can achieve emancipation and there have been a lot of criticisms you can find in different texts of that time in which the tantric and hatha yogic and any kind of such esoteric ideas were condemned so due to this and in combination with the emerging colonial ideas which happened later after the moguls had uh, you know lost their power in india so all of these factors combined together it kind of pushed india's heterodox religions like tantra and other mystical schools of thought a uh, lot of tribal religions animism and so so on and so forth they had to be pushed onto the margins they were pushed onto the fringe basically and uh, the other orthodox religion ideas they became prominent i mean so much so that even right now in india the whole idea of a god i mean even when a hindu an orthodox hindu talks about god it sounds more like a christian idea of approaching the god which even in the vedas is not spoken of so where does this idea come from it comes from colonial baggage it comes from our centuries of religious uh, change which also happened because of the islamic invaders and this is something which is quite difficult to eradicate because i always tell people that especially if i talk about the victorian mindset it's like the albatross around our necks that we still even till this date we are not able to get rid of this thought process we are still thinking our morality is based on the victorian school of thought and even though the british may have moved on but we still carry that in every walk of our life that even when we try to speak about uh, the idea 
of a god and not to say that the idea of theism, the idea of a creator god does not exist in Indian tenets, but it is not the same as expounded in the Christian ideas. So it has been intertwined so much with Indian religious thought, specifically the modern Hindu religious thought, that it's become extremely hard to separate the grain from the chaff, basically, so to speak. And that's exactly what I wanted to highlight through my podcasts too. So in the sense of Tantra itself, a lot of uh, problems exist here that basically the people, the charlatans who pose themselves as healers or as shamans or what Indian media calls witch doctors, they claim to solve all of your problems just by taking some fees and doing some kind of ridiculous rituals, which actually may not even have any kind of ritual authenticity because many of these people are just fooling the masses because unfortunately even though a lot of the people in India claim to be proud of the Indian culture but very few actively take any interest in digging deeper into the historical, philosophical, soteriological tenets of the vast number of philosophical and religious schools that India has produced because in India basically we are still expected to be a doctor or an engineer. So basically, if you're trying to study art, philosophy, spirituality, then that's not supposed to get you anywhere in life. And we are only beating our chest and thumping our chest to say that, you know, we are proud to be Indians, we are proud to have this cultural wealth, yet very few even bother to penetrate deeper. And what does that lead to? It leads to people who believe in any hearsay in superstitions and they think that just by accepting what uh, a person is telling them that if they go to some kind of charlatan who claims that he can solve their problems they will put their hundred percent trust upon this person without doing a background check without understanding whether this person really possesses the knowledge to do what he does and why does this happen because of lack of understanding of the scriptures, lack of understanding of the philosophical tenets, and specifically lack of understanding of Tantra, because many of these charlatans, they claim to use Tantra to solve the problems. And that's exactly why Tantra has become synonymous with a lower class of magic, black magic in India. And people just think that Tantra equals to black magic, and they themselves are oblivious of the vast number of tantric traditions which have a very sophisticated soteriological system which deals not with just mundane affairs but mainly to achieve the transcendental idea of man's nature, of man's understanding of the world around and basically to understand the whole connection between the microcosm and the macrocosm as the hermetic axiom goes, as above so below and to understand the divinity within oneself and ultimately to transcend between beyond uh, the cyclic system samsara to attain moksha or nirvana whatever terminology you want to use it this is an indian problem now when we come to the west specifically when we are talking about uh, western currents or the underground scene which seems to incorporate many of the ideas from Indian Tantra or iconography or any kind of such 
seemingly attractive, seemingly antinomian ideas upon to itself. The other trend that I've seen uh, for many years, in fact, is uh, the idea of believing in uh, some kind of evil manifestations that basically when you are trying to practice uh, these systems, you are trying to create something, you're going to, uh, you know, destroy your enemies or, you know, you're some kind of like, you know, super mathochistic and super egotistic person. I mean, that's nothing to do with the traditional idea of Tantra. And specifically, I've seen people who get very attractive to the idea of Agora because Robert Sidwoda's book is so easily accessible and people take that as some kind of like Agora gospel or Agora Bible, which is definitely not. And uh, also many of the videos up there on YouTube where you can see so-called Agoris meditating on the ghats of Varanasi and doing some sort of antinomian rituals, meditating upon corpses, eating human flesh, drinking human urine, and so on and so forth. And a lot of the people in the West, they kind of think that this is... Uh, something that they're trying to do and uh, you know they can just simply copy that and it all entails to becoming some kind of badass but let me correct you that none of that really is the core idea of the system if you will even ever visit Varanasi and if you even will check the work that has been done by uh, Kinaram Baba Kinaram one of the most foremost uh, agoris of Varanasi who in fact was himself a reformer and reformer of the Agora system too, and his line of Aghoris. Uh, in Varanasi, they have done tremendous social work. I mean, they've made schools, hospitals, they have looked after the poor, and in fact, these great Aghoris themselves were healers. They were not just people who were sitting and doing some kind of weird ritual to become evil or, you know, to attain some kind of uh, egotistical goal. This is the big misunderstanding which many Westerners have regarding Tantra, Agora and such things. These systems are not studied to become some kind of egotistical, magical sorcerer who controls everything and will punish his enemies or take revenge on people he or she does not like. No, sorry to break your bubble, but the core idea of these practices comes from compassion. When I was in Nepal, when I was doing my studies in Kathmandu, I spoke to a very highly respected Nath Agora and he told me also the meaning of black. Now, specifically in the black metal circles or the metal circles in general, the black color seems to also denote something that is on the fringe and specifically black denotes black magic to many people. While from the Western point of view, that might be a correct assertion the same does not necessarily apply to the eastern dharmic and tantric and agoric context when an agori wears black quoting this great guru whom i will not name he told me basically that agoris wear black because when people come to them with their problems they can absorb all of their negativity onto themselves they take the pain and suffering of beings who come to them for help. So I have a question to all of the uh, Westerners who are claiming that, uh, you know, there are some kind of Agora practitioners by just posting a picture of a skull on social media, but yet indulging in some terrible actions, harming people, chiding people, 
behaving in the most egotistical way, I really urge you to look within yourself that if you are claiming to do that, that's got nothing to do with the actual practice of Agora. That these sadhus, these great beings, they are trying to practice sadhana to also benefit all sentient beings for the liberation of all beings. They are, in our society, people are going up to these kind of sadhus, whether it's uh, Agora or a Tantrika, an authentic Tantrika or any yogi, they go there to these people to seek their blessings when they have issues in their lives. Or I, as I have been told by a friend of mine who basically even helped me to do this podcast, uh, that he told me such stories that many of these great saints, uh, they have been able to help people from get rid of terrible ailments to get get a child people who were childless they got a child so many of these great saints they are helping people their aim is not to harm anybody their aim is not to be an evil badass so this is the core misunderstanding regarding tantra and specifically agora that i have specifically noticed the other point i would like to add here especially on the context of Agora and the whole aesthetic around it that off late on social media, the whole trend of uh, using human skulls or bones in the context of Tantra has become very common and many people are very casually taking skulls and bones and are just posing with them on social media and are claiming that, you know, they are practicing Tantra. But let me tell you that even in the original context of this praxis, you need to know how to work with these energies because you are basically dealing with the remains of a person, a dead person. And if you do not know how to deal with this, it can even create some very serious issues. And I can talk that, I can say that from personal stories I have heard of people who were trying to experiment with some kind of skull magic because skull magic exists in different traditions it's not something that is specific to tantra but especially even in a tantric context you need to even know a lot of details about how to use these items and they cannot be just learned like that you need to have initiation into an authentic tantric parampara authentic tantric tradition specifically one that is engaging in these practices and even then you're not going to get this knowledge just like that, because you have to go step by step, you have to work through your mind, you have to purify yourself, you have to go through several steps of practices, only then you can reach the level where you can finally understand about more antinomian practices. Because these practices are not something that are just to be shown off on social media and just by posing with a skull or bones or putting any kind of wrathful imagery that does more harm than good. So basically, Tantra and Agora has got nothing to do with the Western idea of evil. In fact, the whole idea of good and evil is uh, very different according to Tantric traditions or Indian traditions. We are not looking at things in such a black and white system. So these ideas are stemming from a more Western Judeo-Christian point of view, but the same does not apply to tantric traditions. That's also why the misinterpretation of deities like Kali or Shiva, Kali specifically, who is kind of misunderstood as a demoness, and in fact I have seen some uh, 
really disgusting depictions of Kali on certain so-called magic pages on Facebook wherein she was depicted as a vampire just because I think that in the mythology she appears to drink the blood of a demon. But here I would like to add a point that it's very laughable because if a person has even studied a little bit about Kali, they would know that Kali is not a demon, but Kali is a demon slayer. And her wrathful appearance has also got nothing to do with the idea of a demon. She is terrifying and wrathful to the negativities, to demons themselves. And mythologically speaking, those demons may have appeared in flesh, but on a more symbolic and esoteric level, the Son demons, they also pertain to different ideas, different afflictions like anger and ego and many such ideas. So Tantra tries to transcend these and hence a lot of the deities that you see they are intensely rich with symbolism. So taking something just by how it appears on its face value and then misinterpreting it does more harm than good. And that's exactly why according to tantric systems, it is always prescribed for a person to go through an authentic system of initiation under a qualified guru so that you understand the deeper aspects of a particular deity, the deeper aspects of a particular philosophical tenet. I mean, of course, nowadays with social media's advent, it's impossible to stop the stop people from sharing images of very secretive tantric deities openly and, and many times, even in fact, just yesterday on social media, I saw a very terrible misinterpretation of uh, tantric Buddhist deities it cannot be stopped. Of course, it's not in my hands. It, it cannot be stopped at all. But what we can at least do is to raise uh, attention, to raise this topic, and at least to those people who are more willing to adapt and learn about these practices in their more authentic and traditional context, so that those with faith will not be cheated. Those with faith will understand how to proceed onto this path. This is exactly the kind of effort I'm trying to make with this podcast and what I've done in the past with my lectures in Russia so that those people who want to approach a specific tantric system, they may not get fooled. They may have an idea of what they're looking for so that they can lead on to the path that they're looking for. And I would say that many of the people who have heard uh, these lectures in the past have also come to me and they have said that they uh, had a lot of such misconceptions to begin with and hence it was very important for them to hear what the real essence of the system is so that they do not get stuck in uh, a very difficult situation especially because when you're entering a tantric path irrespective of which system it is it could be shakta shaiva bauda whatever this is a dangerous territory because although Tantra can give you enlightenment or liberation quickly, quickly in the sense that you can dedicatedly practice in one lifetime and you may achieve liberation or emancipation. Yet, if it's misunderstood, if it's misinterpreted, and most importantly, if it's misused, it can bring you down very quickly. It's like stepping on deliberately on a live wire, you know, like it can just burn you down in a few seconds. 
So hence, it is very important to understand the traditional context of tantric practice before we make any kind of assumptions and before we try to mix it with an alien paradigm, the whole system of which has got nothing to do philosophically or soteriologically with the original tantric systems. And this is exactly what has been going on, which is the reason why the first two episodes I was trying to dedicate specifically onto these topics. So that before I would proceed in the future podcast episodes about uh, the tantric systems themselves, uh, these points would be clear. So the other issue that I would like to highlight here is also the approach towards Tantra. Now there can be different types of approaches. One is of course a more scholarly, theoretical approach and the other is a more practical approach and both approaches have their own viable importances of course and they should both be encouraged because study and understanding is definitely important. And practice is important too. And maybe some people are more perceiving themselves as scholars than practitioners. And there are people who are mainly perceiving themselves as practitioners and not as scholars. So they are both viable paths. But uh, still, what is more important to understand here is that when we are trying to approach any tantric system, it is still better to go through an authentic lineage. Even if we are a scholar, Many scholars have uh, translated tantras from Sanskrit into English or Western languages without ever consulting any authentic guru of that system. And the issue here is that when we are talking about the tantric text, the texts are written in what we call as twilight language. And these texts in themselves are self-secret. So even though you might be a Sanskrit scholar, just by translating a text that is written in that language may not mean that you understand what exactly it is saying. You might feel that you're getting some surface knowledge, but every tantra, it has its own cipher, which only a guru can reveal to an initiated disciple. This is a very big mistake that a lot of the people in the West have made, and they continue to make this mistake by not investigating into an authentic existing lineage and by just learning a language like Sanskrit and thereby declaring themselves as authorities on a particular subject of Tantra by merely picking any Tantric text and translating it. That is also not something that's going to help anybody because even if let's say person A buys a translated Tantra into a language of their own choice, it is still not enough to understand everything. Because this is one point in the West that I would like to highlight that uh, bookish knowledge is something that is very much cherished as far as the Western mindset is concerned. But according to Dharmic traditions, Tantra traditions, any tradition worth its salt, you need to have an existing lineage, what we call a parampara, which is an unbroken lineage. Unbroken why? So that there is a solid proof that a specific school of thought, a specific school of meditation or philosophy was maintained in an uninterrupted manner for centuries and hence it's not corrupt. Alien ideas have not crept in there. 
distortions have not crept in in there. Practitioners have attained results which can be verified, tested and then consolidated. This is extremely important. That is exactly why a guru is so important because the guru is in tantric tradition is supreme in fact. And he or she is the one who is going to introduce a disciple to his or her choice of deity and a specific mantra which is also supposed to be kept secret and initiation name among many other important aspects. Because then you are ent- it's like entering a portal. So how can people assume that just by reading a book which has been translated by a person who just happens to be a scholar of a language like Sanskrit can give you any kind of benefit? If you really want to understand the system of praxis, it is thereby utterly imperative for you to seek out an authentic guru and literally to surrender your ego to that guru. Now this is something Westerners find very difficult. Specifically, if I'm talking about a lot of the Western currents, when the whole idea of the self as God is so prominent in which you do not want to accept any other person above you or higher than you. But the role of a guru in tantric system is undeniable. It's unmistakably there. And the guru is not just existing as somebody who is higher above you. There have been many instances in uh, throughout history of different tantric traditions where a disciple may have attained higher realization than a guru. And it doesn't mean that the guru then is going to be jealous of the disciple. That's the point because a guru is there to guide a being from the cycle of existence to achieve a specific goal of that particular tradition. That is why a guru is there so that he can keep the disciple in check. He can guide the disciple onto his path and also to help the disciple if he is making a mistake and also to put the disciple back on track if he is going astray. These things cannot be achieved by merely reading a book and even more so in the tantric system because we are dealing with deities, with mantras, with mandalas which are sacred geometry and many other such deeper esoteric aspects that without saying cannot be understood just on your own and specifically because you need to be trained how to do a particular type of meditation, how to particularly meditate upon a specific deity, on a specific mantra, the type of rituals that are to be done, the sacred days on which specific meditations have to be done, your vows, your conduct, the application of the teaching in your daily life, specifically if you're a householder, becomes even more important. So all of these things can only be laid out to a person by a guru, a qualified guru who himself has gone through the same training by his masters and has exhibited results and thereby has been given the permission to teach the same to others. And then the guru also has his own way of checking the disciples. Many people also think that, especially in our modern times where everything is so quick and we want results very quickly and the same even goes for spiritual path people who have usually some kind of disdain from materialism and they think that they can come and try spirituality yet they are not able to get rid of their materialistic mindset of achieving something quickly they apply that even in spirituality and that is a big mistake because nobody 
can guarantee you instant enlightenment or instant liberation. Even though you will be accepted by a guru, the work has to be done by you. You have to make the effort of doing the meditation. You have to make the effort of going through the system that you have been initiated into to make the specific number of uh, mantra recitations or ritual uh, ideas, whatever is there in that particular system, you'd have to go through that. So the effort has to be put into place. The other thing which would conclude uh, this podcast, which I want to highlight more, is that uh, many people come into spirituality, specifically dharmic spirituality, it might be Buddhism or Hinduism, doesn't matter. They're thinking that it is some kind of uh, way of escaping from their daily mundane activities and just to feel better or, you know, to get a high or something like that. That's completely wrong. Because if we are entering this path, it is not for some kind of new age healing or any kind of other such mundane ideas. You are entering the system to really understand the whole nature of phenomena, to basically cut through the cycle of existence, to attain liberation, to attain moksha, and of course, on the same hand, also to have more like mundane goals achieved as well. But it doesn't mean that you will have to think that basically when you enter a spiritual path, it can just give you enlightenment instantly in just like at a snap of a fingertip. So that doesn't work. So I would advise the people who are listening to this podcast who are interested in approaching dharmic traditions. You might be interested in Vedic systems or tantric systems or yogic systems, whatever. My advice to you is that firstly, to examine your motivation. The motivation is the most important. That Why and what for? If your motivation is anything connected to whatever points I have made in this podcast, then I think you can approach specifically Tantra traditions. Otherwise, it's really important to first go through your own mind to break through the habitual patterns and to really understand the real motive of these practices. Hence, you will not be then confused about mixing Indian or Dharmic traditions with something that is completely alien and uh, just, just simply doesn't match in its philosophy and soteriology. So thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And I would be looking forward to your feedbacks. And uh, do let me know in your feedback if there are any specific questions or if there are any specific topics that you want me to highlight or express and I would be happy to address them and till then goodbye and I wish you all a very great weekend ahead.